Welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center Podcast, brought to you by Compass Data Centers. We build for what's next. Now here's your host, Raymond Hawkins. Welcome again to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. I'm your host, Raymond Hawkins. We are recording in Dallas, Texas on Friday, November 20th, as our our planet continues to wrestle with a a global pandemic. Uh, Grateful to have you listening. Uh, Wherever you download your podcasts, uh, feel free to give us feedback on Twitter at CompassDCS. Feel free to send us a tweet, give us uh, insights and things that you'd like to hear or see. Uh, from the from the podcast today, we have Nancy Novak, Chief Innovation Officer at Compass, um, with us. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit about uh, Nancy uh, today and, and her career. Uh, candidly, a, a thirty year career in construction, uh, pretty impressive stuff. Some amazing projects. So we're going to hear Nancy's story, and then we'll get into some specifics in our next recording with Nancy as well. Nancy, thank you for joining us today. It's so great to be here, Raymond. I'm excited to be able to tell our audience a little bit about myself and why I'm so passionate about our industry and, and um, you know, just look forward to being able to contribute to others who might want to follow in our footsteps. Awesome stuff, Nancy. So, Nancy, if you don't mind, can you start off with how did you get to Compass and then we'll go back to the beginning of your career. So what was the initial connection to Compass and how did you become Chief Innovation Officer here at Compass? So basically, I I was in the building industry for, you know, like you said, over 20 years with a large national firm. And then I retired for about four years and I traveled and went to a lot of different conferences. And and then I was invited back to work with a global firm. And one of our clients was a national contractor. Encompass was part of our national program. So I met Chris Crosby through that national program. And um, we just hit it off. So when I decided to retire again, he gave me one day of retirement before he called me up and said, come help me build our business at a really crucial time. And I was really excited to be able to come help Chris here in the Compass Data Center world. Now, what year was that, Nancy, that uh, you got a day of retirement before Chris started bothering you? 2017. All right. So three years and change now with Compass. Yep. Good stuff. All right, Chief Innovation Officer, let's take a turn of the crank on that, and then let's go all the way back to the beginning of your career if you're willing. Sure. So as Chief Innovation Officer, day-to-day, the things that that, uh, you're the most concerned about and the things that you're trying to push the envelope on. So I'm most concerned about disrupting the construction industry to where, you know, we can actually become more productive and more inclusive and more innovative um, the construction industry has kind of been stalemated for the last three decades when it comes to actual stats on production, and we're, we're horrible when it comes to being in a more inclusive environment. So those are the two biggest things I'm most concerned with because the biggest thing that we deliver as Compass is a product, which is a building that we then own and we have assets in. So um, disrupting the construction business is top of mind. So So disrupting the construction industry, I think, Nancy, I heard somebody say once that Virtually every industry has seen significant productivity gain as, you know, computing has, digitization of industries has changed our world, that almost every industry has seen productivity gain, and that construction is one of the few industries that have seen little to no productivity change in decades. Is that an accurate statement? Is that a a fair assessment? Yes, 100% accurate. 
Yep. And, and and when you talk about the disrupting, I think that is at the heart of what you're talking about is, hey, how do we help take construction and, and, and introduce um, means and methods and technologies that help change and, and increase productivity? Is that is that a fair summary from a sales guy asking a construction person what, what you mean by that? Yes, that's the that's the primary concern is, you know, how do we become more productive as an industry? Um, and, you know, like literally, how do we change those statistics? Because the clients we build for Raymond in the data center world, you know, they're looking at our industry and they're saying this isn't good enough. So we have right. to get better. Right, right. And then and then the other one you talked about briefly was being inclusive. Two minutes, I, I don't want to sound uh, like we're um, pigeonholing anyone, but having uh, the head of our construction business, which is the role you had before innovation, being a woman is somewhat unusual. So can you talk about diversity and inclusion briefly uh, on how that uh, is part of your role as well? Well, yeah. I mean, this is something that, you know, when I came on with Chris, he knew that this was a passion of mine. It has been for many, many years. Um, during the end of my first um, career where I retired, I I headed up a diversity and inclusion um, initiative within the firm. And I was always so confused about why we couldn't get better. Um, we, we were able to kind of um, increase the pipeline from an entry-level position, but we, we, had a, we had an impossible time moving women up in the ranks. And, um, and other diverse employees, not just women, but just you know from all different cultures and ethnic backgrounds. And it was just mind-boggling to me, and I kept I kept kind of using the industry as the excuse, like, well, it's just a horribly, you know, inconvenient industry to be in. And after retiring and studying this problem through lots of different lenses and other businesses, I realized that it's the industry that has to change. We have to quit asking the, you know, the folks that we want in our industry to change and start changing the way we do business as a construction industry. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I've read some of the stuff you've written. I think that, you know, one of the ones points I, th I saw you raise that I thought was really, really valid. How does a woman with kids handle being on a job site that might move around or be in a different location from, you know, one year to the next? Hey, can we do things that make it where she could do her work in a manufacturing facility and, and be able to do offsite fabrication and make her job a little bit more predictable than these moving around job sites? That's just frankly something I'd never thought about, but I think it's a great yeah. Example this. to get your arms around to go, yeah, it's hard if she's got to be at this job site for six months and then that job site for six months and then that. Well, her duties as mom can be really, really impacted by those change in locations. Well, think about it. Like, you know, in my case, I just relocated my family 17 times and um, <laughs> because I've built some uh, very prestigious things and they don't build them side by side, you know, so you have to travel to go do those things. And women, they didn't just line them up in Northern Virginia for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, coast, yeah, coast yeah. to coast. And, you know, and women are still considered primary caregivers in the home. So it affects us more than men. Although I, I'll be honest, like men want to be home to see their kids too. They want, they want to spend time with their family and, and be able to coach ball games and things like this. So our industry, you know, if we can change this to where um, it's not such a burden to be a part of it, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Um, it, it'll make a huge impact on who wants to join us, right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, certainly I like the heart of it in in being driven by inclusion uh, and the diversity in, in our construction business. But you're right. It helps men and women both. And I think that's super, super important. All right, well, we're getting a little bit uh, ahead of ourselves. I'd love to hear um, back up 
where you're from, grew up, where'd you go to school, what made you say, I want to be in the construction business? And if you don't mind, I mean, if you, you can just give us an, it'd be great to hear an, an audible version of your resume of how you got here and how you made this journey to be, you know, so many, so many years in the construction business with so much experience. And it, and if you would, I know you have several fascinating projects that you, that you oversaw. If you want to sprinkle in some of those stories, that would be great. <laughs> well, this is easy. Okay. So Yes, I am. Um, I, I, I love telling the story. So, and my dad is always embarrassed whenever I tell the story. <laughs> so, um, I, I come from a family of four girls, and I have an older sister, a twin sister, and a younger sister. And my dad was, you know, very, very rough and tumble. Like, you know, we we were raised hunting, fishing, all of that. And he, he was a superintendent, a general superintendent for one of the largest firms in the world at the time, um, MK Construction, and. Um, and he was also a Marine and a semi-pro football player. So very manly man with four girls. So, <laughs> so as, you, yeah. as you can see, we were kind of raised with his eyesight and, you know, learned a lot of the things that were very enjoyable for us to learn that um, a lot of girls didn't get the opportunity to, you know, be around. And part of that was visiting job sites because he also had to travel and commute and work out of town. And so every summer was spent on a job site and, Oh my gosh, we made really good money working for my dad on job sites when we were younger because the trades are a very good a good business to be working in. So so I I kind of fell in love with the business and felt very much at home on a job site from a very young age. And then, you know, as I started to grow um in my in in, in got into uh, through high school and into college, I pursued a construction management degree at San Diego State because it was a brand new program. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool, you know, because everybody in our in business up until that point was either from the trades or from a civil background. And construction management was actually quite new from a formal education standpoint. So, so I was intrigued by that. And I, by the time I got through the, that, those courses, I'd already been married and had two kids. So I'll be the first one to admit I was top of my class because I wasn't out partying like other college students. <laughs> I had responsibility. Be, be, being a mom tends to focus the mind a little bit, right? Yeah. A little different experience in school. It was, it was, it had a different um, urgency for me than, you know, than other, other folks might have. But, um, but, you know, I always felt so fortunate that I got to experience some of the coolest projects. And I, I did a lot of military work on military bases um, as I was growing in my career. I spent a lot of time in a role of quality which helped me really understand the, the means and methods of how scope gets installed in every discipline within the trades. So I had a lot of good technical background and my minor um, was in construction technology, which I think is so funny now because every, every time I talk about construction technology, everyone wants to say, oh, you mean like BIM or laser beam, you know, la or laser to BIM or whatever, you know, some other type of digital technology. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> when I... When I graduated um, construction technology, there was no computer aspect of it, right? It was, <laughs> right, it was right. about concrete. It wasn't, it wasn't that technology. <laughs> it yeah. was a different type of technology. But anyway, but um, you know, we fast forward 30 years. We've, we've um, made lots of advances, and which is, you know, kind of gets back to our why aren't we more productive. But nonetheless, I spent many years working in, um, on military bases and with the national firm, building some really cool things. And to your point, Raymond, some of the funnest jobs I've done have been the launch facilities for the Atlas V program for Lockheed and the Air Force, um, both coast, and then also 
the Pentagon renovation, which was um, a contract we were awarded prior to the plane hitting. But then, you know, a couple of days after we got the contract, the planes hit. And so that was a whole nother, you know, aspect to a very challenging project. And then like, you know, I've even gotten to do some really cool stuff with the Smithsonian and lots of amazing clients. So there's very few things that I, I, I would say I haven't had some type of experience in building when it comes to the commercial world, whether it's industrial, hospital schools, you know, airports, those types of things. Um, and I've, I just, I love the industry because every time you build for a certain client, you learn about that business and that client. So you learn all about airports when you build an airport. You learn about data centers when you build a data center. You learn about you know, museums when you build something for the Smithsonian and aerospace when you're building a launch pad. So it's like, if you're a learner, this is a fantastic business to be in. Let's take two seconds, Nancy, if you're willing to to give us a little more insight. In the launch pad one fascinates me. Was your client NASA? Was your client Boeing? Was your client the Air, uh, Air Force? Who, who was the client? And tell us a little more, more about the project size. Uh, oh, scope, sure. location. So it was um, Lockheed was the actual was our direct client, um, but they okay. were also working for the Air Force. And I have a small world story that I want to I want to talk about when I get done with how we got this job. So I was actually I'll just say on a personal level, um, I was on the West Coast at the time this project was presented to me because I was doing um, a, what I call a B one extraction plant in Burbank. And Lockheed was, it was their property. So I got to know Lockheed on that project. And they told us that they were getting ready to go build these, it's called EELV, Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle Projects. And they were competing with Boeing. And I, I was interested in it because I was in a bit of a funk because I had just gotten divorced. And um, I was, you know, kind of like wanting something to reignite my, you know, my energy and my passion. And I thought, well, that sounds so awesome. So I started attending meetings with Lockheed up at Vandenberg Air Force Base and trying to figure out what this job was all about. And I was just just enraptured by the whole aerospace concept. It had been many years since a launch pad had been built. They only build these things, you know, every quarter of a century, except for now we've got some commercial space activity, which is great. And so I really wanted to be a part of it. And so I, it's, I spent 18 months pursuing this project, you know, right alongside with Lockheed and, um, you know, traveling back and forth to Cape Canaveral and Irvine, which is where our office was. And, you know, we started out with 14 different competitors and went down to five, then it went down to two. And I thought, oh my gosh, I was still very young in my career. And I thought, I'm, if I don't get this, I'm going to be fired because we're spending so much money pursuing this, right? And um, it was such a great day when they said, you know, that they awarded us this project because I had gotten so attached to it. And um, I, I thought it was really a very noble thing to be able to go do because this was going to be a legacy project from the Atlas program, which has great history of flight. And, you know, we like being as in the U.S., you know, at the tip of the spear when it comes to space technology and, um, and space flight. So being a part of that was just a really wonderful thing for me. And I, I had gotten remarried um, and relocated across country and was able to build this project that started out at about $100 million, ended up closer to $300 million on the East Coast and a similar thing over on the West Coast as a dual coast award when we were done. And when you say launch, you mean the pad, the tower, yeah. all the everything, right? The whole project? Oh, yeah. Even the mobile launch platform, which was it was a clean pad approach, which was very you know, revolutionary for the aerospace industry. They normally had what they call um, you know, an umbilical tower that they would 
a rec the vehicle on. And we, we did is we built a vehicle integration facility just a little bit down the road that was about 300 feet tall. And we build the vehicle in there and then they pull the vehicle up to the pad, which was clean. And the, what this allows them to do is have another vehicle on standby if they if there's a problem with like the payload or something is you know they doesn't it doesn't clog up the pad itself while they're waiting for those problems to be solved so the launch pad is still available for another vehicle to fly and these are heavy lift vehicles so they can launch a bus into space these are this is big big time right when it comes to right. not just low orbit but you know um, the big stuff so yeah, so we built the, the control center, we built the launch pad, we built the mobile launch platform, we built the vehicle integration facility, and the whole complex. It was really, really amazing. I'm afraid to ask how much uh, cement goes into that, how big a, <laughs> I just I got to imagine it's just... I actually have those statistics about how many miles of, you know, cabling and how many, you know, how many yards of concrete that we placed... Uh, but since you're catching me on tons the fly, tons of rebar. <laughs> yeah, tons of steel actually. But I, I have it in my um, my actually it's one of my retirement books. Uh, but I haven't brought it with me, so I can't give you those stats. No, no, I bet there's some fascinating stuff there. So, did you build the exact same thing on the West Coast, or was it a similar? So on the West Coast, we ended up taking um, it was a uh, one of the pad threes, and we renovated it rather than building it from a clean pad. So it, it's uh, on the Cape Canaveral coast, we demoed everything and started over pretty much on the West coast. It was more of a retrofit, but it was the same vehicle and the same program. And the interesting thing is on the West coast, it's, it's really designed for a polar orbit, which is a higher, it's a harder thrust, you know, from a trajectory standpoint. So it does, so vehicles don't launch near as frequently off the West coast as they do the East coast. Um, simply from economic standpoint or from a need standpoint, as far as the military is concerned. Right. All right. Next question. How many rockets have been launched off the pad you built? Oh my goodness. I, you know, it's, it's, they've set records. I, I, I don't, I haven't even kept track, but it's like, it's phenomenal. And, and you know, what's what's so great, Raymond is prior to the Atlas five program, uh, they had what they called the Titan, um, Lockheed did. And the Titan was mm -hmm. like, every time they launched one of those, it would be like, everybody take cover because the Titan's going off and they were very unstable. The Atlas program, the legacy of Atlas is amazing, and they have launched dozens of rockets off that pad, and it's a huge success. Awesome stuff. So so very near and dear to my heart. So my dad, Air Force for 20 years, retired, uh, went to work for Boeing Aerospace, your competitor. And his job was, a, he's what was called a human factors engineer. So he's got a degree in engineering, a degree in psychology, and his job was to spend time with all the astronauts, interview them, and ensure that what the space station freedom that, that Boeing was building met the needs of the astronauts. And it's unbelievable, Nancy. Wow. The, the, the whole global community of people who've been in space is only like 350, 400 people. Yeah. And so he would go around and interview these people and make sure that he understood what they experienced in space and could communicate it back to the engineers and say, hey, here's what we need, here's what will work, here's what won't work. And so he would always come home with these autographed pictures of astronauts and I uh, always thought that was just fascinating. That's so that, um, cool. Such a small community of people who've, who've you know, well, it is. Made, so made so that leads me to remember my small world story that I promised everybody. Great. So good, good. I le So I ended up, uh, I was in Cape Canaveral. We were doing the wet dress rehearsals and getting ready to do the maiden voyage for the first Atlas V heavy lift. And tragedy strikes the D.C. area and New York with the terrorist attacks. 
and I had already been, like I said, in on all of the interviews. We'd already signed the contract. I knew I was coming up to D.C. to do the Pentagon renovation, which is the entire Pentagon. But urgency strikes because of this terrorist attack. And so I come up here in a hurry. Um, you know, I'm scrambling to, you know, get my kids to where they're at a break point in school. And I've got to go start this massive project and, you know, getting my house ready. And, you know, and it was like, uh, by the time we moved up here, um, it was in November. So we were right on the verge of, you know, having the holiday season and everything. And I thought, okay, I'm going to invite the entire staff at the Pentagon to my house and we're going to do like a, you know, a pasta party, which is what I, I love doing. And, and then get everybody kind of just, you know, as a, a really strong team, you know, approach because everybody was very stressed out. Um, I mean, it was not uncommon for us to have meetings where people just burst into tears and it was just a very, very stressful time. So I sent messages out to my new neighbors. Sounds a lot like my sales meetings. But go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I, sent, I sent messages out to my new neighbors saying, um, hey, just beware. I've got, you know, there's going to be some traffic here. We're in construction. Uh, a lot of people are going to be coming over and we're going to have like a get together. You know, here's kind of what, what, what the whole story is. And, um, you know, again, it was kind of cold and I didn't really know my neighbors. So I, not, I didn't really get any attention from the neighborhood. But so here's my small world part. So a week after this um, event takes place, one of my neighbors comes jogging into my store and knocks on the door and she says, hey, you know, I see that you're in construction. I got your flyer and I'm having trouble with my basement contractor who just ran out on me and I wanted to know if you could help me. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. We don't do that kind of construction. I do big commercial type jobs. And she's like, oh, well, wh wh where are you working? I said, well, I'm at the Pentagon now. She said, oh, I'm at the Pentagon too. And I was like, oh, okay. And she says, so where did you guys move from? I said, oh, I came from, you know, the Cape Canaveral area. She's like, really? What, what were you doing at Cape Canaveral? I said, oh, we had a job down there with Lockheed. And she said, oh, you, were, you, you guys built EELV? And I said, how do you know what EELV is? She says, well, I'm Sandra Gregory. I'm the general for the, uh, as the comptroller for the Air Force. So I was stationed at Patrick Air Force Base. And every time you hit a, a milestone with Lockheed, I was writing you the checks. <laughs> Oh, wow. And she's how like, funny is she, that? She like lives right across the street from me. <laughs> oh, how great is that? Isn't that crazy? It's yeah, that's so funny. So crazy. <laughs> All right, so I got you, you, we got it while we're on Small World, so we'll do Small World. So my aunt lives in Houston. I'm a little, little kid, and my dad's still in the Air Force. And we go to Houston to um, visit my aunt, and she's like, hey, I've got some friends coming over today, and we're going to go fishing. And Raymond, you should stay here and make sure you meet them. And they were... It was Neil Armstrong who'd oh. come by to go fishing with my aunt. So, uh, yeah, the, the whole astronaut thing and the feeling uh, amazed by those guys and just what impressive people they are. But uh, that was my that was my touch with my 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 uh, my brush by greatness. The 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 what what, what was the movie? The right stuff. So, yeah, yeah neat, neat to get to meet him. Good. Yeah. That's amazing. What an amazing yeah. person he is. Yeah, good, good stuff. All right, so I know people have got to be going, what in the world does this have to do with data centers? <laughs> I really, really appreciate. Um, if you would, Nancy, could you help us transition a little, uh, talking about disruption in the business, talking about, you know, trying to interject productivity into uh, into the productivity gains into the construction business. Could you take a few minutes and just talk about Chris's vision, what he saw as ways for us to do construction of a data center differently and what got you excited and what made you be willing to come out of retirement to, to help us innovate in this space? Yeah, so um, after being retired for, you know, close to four years, 
I went back to work again for a company called Balfour Beatty, which is how I met Chris Crosby because he was one of our national accounts. And so anyway, uh, fast forward after doing what I needed to do for them, I decided to retire again. And I was literally down at my house in Florida and Crosby like saw my announcement and calls me and says, you know, I really want you to come and see what we got going on. And I told him, this is kind of funny. And I, I don't know if he likes it when I say this, but I told him, I said, I really don't like building data centers because, you know, they, they just suck the life out of everybody. It's always like double, triple shifts. And we need it yesterday. I mean, my husband's going through that right now. And, uh, you know, I just think that it's just horrible on the construction industry. And um, I said, I also have never worked for an owner and I don't know how that's going to work out. And he said, no, really, I want you to come see what we have going on. And um, I, so I said, sure. I, and, and I was really, really impressed with the investment he had put into the design of our, of our products and how we're able to do things as fast or faster than our competitors on a single shift with the respect for the tradespeople that we, by, de- by the way, desperately are short of, right? To make it a cleaner, faster, higher quality product um, and not have to kill everybody with these ridiculous hours to be able to a- accomplish it. Can I highlight one more thing there too? Safer too? Absolutely. That's, I mean, uh, I'm not a construction guy, but that was one that made just all the sense in the world to me, Nancy, when I first heard the story is asking tradesmen to work from, you know, seven to five is one thing. Asking them to work from midnight to late in the morning, single shifting just, I think, improves quality, improves safety. People are wide awake. It fits their day. I just think, I think that one to me just jumps off the page. Yep. A safer job site is a job site that can run during the day and not have people you know, going a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. We can do more with less and we can do it safer and with higher quality. And it's, it is just, it suits people's lifestyles better. It allows us also to offer a more diverse job site, which, you know, we've done really well with on our CM roles. Um, And we're encouraging our general contractors to bring in more diversity and welcome, you know, my gender and also, you know, other diverse employees. So this is all good for the business. And it's a very different paradigm to look at construction through. So that was one of the things that really excited me about Compass. And I also thought, you know, with the investment that was put into this design and these products that we're delivering, there's such a great opportunity to really, really make a difference on how we can deliver through the, you know, industrialized approach to construction, which desperately needs to happen in order for us to be able to, you know, solve a lot of the digital infrastructure concerns as far as, you know, being able to bring the digital age to more than half the world's population. And then in addition, just, you know, disrupt our business in the way that I've been trying to do for decades, right? So you talked about, you used the term industrialize the construction business. Can you give just one or two examples of things we're doing that isn't normal in the construction business or or, or is still new and, and not pervasive? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, doing offsite manufacturing is something that has, um, is people have been playing around with this for decades and um, some people do it more than others, but it has not gotten normalized. And I, and I believe that, you know, we are doing our best to make sure that we can normalize that. And then when you really look at the process around industrialized approach, it, it literally has to do with having a very predictable um, and very, um, you know, certainty around, you know, how you're going to flow the work with the crew sizes in different areas so that people can know where they have to go and be accountable for what they have to accomplish and, um, and understand what the consequences are if things don't get done on time. And then allowing for like, you know, 
abilities to make up for that. So that, you know, so that it's very, the schedule certainty and the cost certainty become very um, succinct for our clients and for ourselves. That's what the industrial hours approach is all about. I mean, think of an assembly line in an auto manufacturing um, plant where everybody has a place and they know what they're supposed to be doing every day. Our tradespeople just want that. They want clear direction. They want to know where they need to go. They want to make sure they can meet their units. And then what's so great about it is once they really, you know, get accustomed to it, then all of a sudden the great ideas start coming out about how they can improve it and even get better and get down to um, zero punch list, which is another goal that we have that is 100% achievable in this type of environment. So, Nancy, most of the folks that listen to us are data center folks, uh, uh, whether uh, folks acquiring data centers or folks marketing and selling them, not construction folks. When you talk about offsite, could you give us two or three minutes on what that is, give an example, why it's an advantage, uh, folks that don't have the same depth of understanding of, of, of construction as you do, why is that a positive? What does it mean? What is, what, what's an example of something we do it with and, and why is it a positive? Well, um, offsite manufacturing for construction is um, is being able to take large components, and it could well, it doesn't have to be large. It has to be any type of way that we componentize units, uh, whether it's subcomponents or fully modularized components, and they put them in an offsite environment and assemble them. In in the case of Compass, you know, we have many examples of this, but one of the largest examples is our power centers. We're not the only ones who do power centers. I mean, this is becoming more and more popular in the data center space. But it makes so much sense because it, it takes the, the risk of doing things um, from a stick-built environment in the field and puts it into a factory where it can be you know, highly monitored, um, you know, the assembly can be standardized, um, it's in a safe and clean and dry environment. Um, so offsite manufacturing is so advantageous because it helps you control the cadence of the job um, in some large ways. And on top of that, you know, Again, I'll go back to my inclusive comment, and that is if you've got a, a manufactured plant, which you know many of our MEP subs are you know, very sure at, the jobs are coming to you. They're, you're not having to relocate every time a new job shows up because the jobs are coming to you and you're shipping out these products that we've now proven can be done at le- lower cost, at a, a higher rate of scheduling certainty and you know, safer and higher quality. And then also now they're adding in the benefit of sustainability because being able to control that environment again in a local area helps us when it comes to transporting materials and looking at local supply sources and you know other ways in which we can build and produce products that are more sustainable. Gotcha. All right, you use non-construction audience. You use the term stick build. Explain to everybody what that means. <laughs> well, that's when um, you show up on the job site and then all of a sudden you start getting boxes of, you know, hangers and conduit and you know studs and you know all of the different parts and pieces and the tradespeople have to then logistically go find everything and assemble it and in a stick built environment where they're having to like you know they, they go up on a lift and they are putting together pipe and they go oh crap i forgot this they get down on the lift they go find it they come back up they you know and there's a lot of waste when it comes to having to just you know bring everything in in separate components and then have the crew on site have to build, assemble everything and then install it from a lift or from or on the floor or in a, in a trench, right? Versus being able to do it in a controlled environment or sending it out in components to where we say, hey, we've got this huge trapeze run and all the components for this are assembled in a way that you just 
grab these packages and you get up on that lift and you can keep going, right? Just yeah. way more efficient. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, Nancy, well, this has been super good hearing a little bit of your history, hearing how you got connected to Compass, um, your incredible experience in the construction business and your passion for improving productivity and reaching out and, and in helping our, our industry uh, become more inclusive, more diverse. So thank you so much for giving us that insight. Look forward to having you back again on our next recording and we'll pick a subject and dig deep into not sure whether we'll do um, diversity or whether we'll do innovation but we'll we'll think about it and talk about it and look forward to having you back again uh, very soon thank you nancy awesome thanks so much bye raymond all right bye nancy thank you for listening nancy thank you for joining us on another edition of not your father's data center We'll be back again soon. Nancy's going to join us on our next recording. We'll be talking about uh, uh, how she is leading the industry from an innovations perspective and as well as uh, her passion for uh, diversity and inclusion. And we look forward to that after Thanksgiving. Everybody stay safe. Uh, enjoy your holiday. Hopefully you get to see family. And we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you uh, on our Twitter account at CompassDCS. Uh, join us again for another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. Take care, everybody.